0: If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we have been going through a series in the book of Ruth. And as we've been going through this uh, book of Ruth, we've noticed, we've taken notice of some principles that apply to the various relationships in our lives. And this morning we're going to continue looking at that and we're going to look at redeeming relationships, relationships that that encourage us, that build us up, that provide us with a sense of safety and security. And so we're going to look at that this morning, and and actually we're going to talk quite a bit this morning about marriage and how to have a redeeming marriage, but we're also going to talk about how to have redeeming relationships in the workplace with our friends, with our neighbors, and and even here in the church. Just to get you caught up to speed, if you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, in chapter 1 we read about a man named Elimelech, and he's got a wife named Naomi and two sons. And they're living in Israel in the time of the judges, which was a time of spiritual and moral decay. And so, as this is all going on, uh, a famine comes to the land, and Elimelech takes his family into the land of Moab. They leave Bethlehem, the house of bread, uh, the promised land of God, and they move into the land of Moab, where their, their enemies of Israel literally live, and they live among their enemies. And while they're there, Elimelech dies. But he has his two sons who are there to take care of the family, right? Because in these days, it was the men who who provided for and took care of the family. And these men, now without a father, say, okay, we've we've got to get married and have our own children so that we can continue on the name of our family. So they both marry Moabite women. One of them is named Ruth. And after 10 years of living in Moab, both the sons of Naomi die. So now you have three women with no husbands. And no children. And no way to provide for themselves. Naomi does the one thing that she knows to do. She says, I'm going back to my people. I'm going back to God's people in Israel. And I'm going to go back to the house of bread. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And they start on their road together. And while they're along the way, Naomi says, turns around and stops and says, Look, you girls are still young. You guys can go back to your parents' house. You can get remarried. There's still hope for you. As for me, there's, there's not much hope. Just, just go. And they say, no, we're going with you. And so she begs them again, and then again. And on the third time, one of the women turns around and goes back. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, says, no, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She says, yeah, you're not getting rid of me. And so Naomi says, well, I can see there's no arguing with you. Come on, if you, if you really feel that way, come on. And so she takes her back with her, and, and when she gets back to Bethlehem, All the women recognize Naomi, and they realize how how long she's been gone, and they're excited this year again. And they say, Naomi, welcome back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, and God has made my life bitter. Call me Mara. That means bitter. And so Naomi is kind of in this this little bit of depression. She's not seeing the full picture yet. And then in chapter 2, the very first verse introduces us to a man named Boaz. And it says that he was a mighty man of valor. He was a man of standing, which means most likely that he was physically fit, like he was ready to go to battle. He could handle himself in war, which was happening a lot during the time of the judges. Uh, but it also means that he was intellectually respected, and his wisdom was respected. He was a man of strong character in the community, someone that people look to. And as we read through chapter 2, we see that, that Ruth is there with Naomi, and they don't have any food. They have no way to provide for themselves, except for God's provision from the Old Testament law, which says that that the orphans and widows and the poor could go to the fields at the harvest time, and they could gather behind the people that were harvesting. And anything that was dropped or anything that was left on the stalk was theirs to take. In fact, the, the landowners were instructed not to glean the very edges of the field, but to leave that for the poor. This was God's provision for those who had no other way to provide for themselves. And so Ruth says, I'm going. She says, let me go, and she goes, and she is in the field of Boaz. It just so happened, is what it says, but this is God's provision for her. She ends up in the field of Boaz, and Boaz happens to come to the field that day, and he sees this new girl, and he goes to his foreman and says, who is that? She sa- he says, oh, that's, that's Ruth, the, the Moabitess that came back with Naomi. And so he pulls all of his men aside, and he says, don't touch her right? Remember, this is a time of moral and spiritual decline. She could have been physically hurt. And not only don't touch her, but don't make fun of her. Don't make fun of her because she's a Moabite. Don't make fun of her because she's gleaning. In fact, if she even comes and gathers with you, with my paid gatherers, don't say anything to her. Let her gather where she is. She's doing a good thing. She's taking care of her mother-in-law and herself. This is a good thing. We're going to honor that. And so she continues to gather there, and and she gathers so much, she comes home. Naomi realizes that everything that she's gathered is way more than what would normally be gathered in a day. And she's like, where did you get all this? She says, well, I I gathered in the field this man named Boaz. And a light goes off in Naomi's head. She says, Boaz is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Don't go anywhere else. Stay with Boaz. Stay in his field. He will protect you. She knows Boaz's character. And that brings us to chapter 3. Now before we get into chapter 3, let's talk about that kinsman redeemer real quick. So the kinsman redeemer was this. Back in Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, there was a provision that if a girl was married, if a woman was married, and her husband died and she didn't have any children, that the brother of that man was to provide her, um, perform the duties of a husband, and provide her with a child so that she could be taken care of, right? There wasn't this option to go out and just look for a job for women. Um, there was one job, right? We all can we we know what that one job was uh, that was available at that time. Uh, the land and the children were their provision, and so everything was tied to the male, the son. And so if if she bears him a son, uh, then that son's named after her original husband. Does that make sense? Everybody follow me on that? All right, and then so the land stays with the family. If not, then she could lose the land, which would have then been her provision, that she could hire people to work the land and have an income that she'd be taken care of. Now once it goes beyond the brothers, like if the first brother doesn't do it, when you can read stories, uh, you can read about Tamar and Judah and see how seriously God takes this when men do not step up and fulfill their role, Um, Not just in this, but in all things men, it is a serious thing for us to step up and fulfill our God-given role, right? Which is a a special partnership with our wife, okay? And uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. If you want to hear more about it, make sure you listen to that message online. But um, uh, once you get beyond the brothers, there's no, no more obligation, right? It's just kind of an opportunity. So once it goes beyond, let's say you've got one brother and he dies, like was the case with Ruth, she had no one. There were near kinsmen that were able to if they were willing to do it, but they didn't have to. Does that make sense? So that's kind of where Boaz is, and that brings us to chapter 3. And what we read about at the very end of chapter 2, it says that, um, Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz and gleaned until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. So, this would be about five months that she's there. She's with Boaz in his field with his workers for five months, from about March to July. And then in chapter one, it says, One day, Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well protected and provided for? Uh, where you will be well provided for. So, Naomi comes to her and says, look, I'm getting old. Nothing's going to change. i got to make sure that you're taken care of before I die. I need to find you a home. And that word home, and provided for, it means rest. I need to find you a place of rest. And so Naomi begins, she's thinking back. She's like, now Boaz is our kinsman redeemer. And he's shown some really strong kindness towards you, above and beyond what's normal. And so she comes up with this plan she comes up with a plan for, for Ruth and let's look at, at verse 3 chapter 3 it says wash and perfume perfume yourself and put on your cl- best clothes then go down to the threshing floor don't let it be uh, don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking when he lies down take note of the place where he's lying then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do okay Now some people see this as starting to get a little PG-13, right? Some scholars look at this and say this is a euphemism. She's telling her to literally throw herself at Boaz. But we're going to talk about that in a minute, and I can tell you that's not what's happening here. So hang in there with me until we get there. So what's happening is this is the harvest time. This is the time of celebration where you finally bring everything that you've collected um, to the threshing floor. And there would have been these community threshing floors, right? So everyone brings their stuff there. You get a turn. You kind of sign up for a turn. Not everyone had their own threshing floor. Uh, And you would go and you would basically kind of beat everything down, beat the grain down, trample it. Ox would walk over it. And then you throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow away the chaff, blow away what wasn't grain, and the heavier grain would fall to the ground, and you collect it. So this was a time of great celebration, because finally, after months and months of planning and planting and waiting, you finally get the harvest, and now you get to sell it and make some money. So this is a time of festivals, eating, drinking, and again, we're in the time when Judges ruled. Uh, If you go back to Judges, it says... There was no king in Israel, and every man w- did what was right in his own eyes. So there were people that were overeating and overdrinking, if you get the picture. So this is, this is what's going on around Boaz. Now, Boaz is a man of character. So we know that, that what we're going to see is, is this. Let's go on. So Ruth says, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. I'm, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you have my best interest in mind. When Boaz t- had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits. All right, so he's in good spirits. Some people look at this and are like, oh, well, Boaz was drunk. But you've got to remember, back to Boaz's character, right? This is not a man who's out doing these sorts of things. He's happy, he's in good spirits, but he's not overindulged in, at this point. And you'll, you'll pick up on that in a little bit later. So he goes down to the far end of his pile of grain... Because he's, he's threshed it all out. He's got his pile, and now he's got to wait for it to be taken back to his property, into the storehouse, or to the market. So he's got to sleep next to it to protect it from people coming in and stealing it, right? So another indication that this is a man that people aren't going to mess with, right? He's a little bit older than Ruth, but he's still somebody that's respected. And people are like, that's Boaz's stuff. He's there. He's protecting it. So he lays down, and then it says, In the middle of the night, something started the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. So Ruth comes over, does exactly what Naomi says. She uncovers his feet, and he, she lays down by his feet. If I woke up, my feet were uncovered, and there was somebody laying there, I'd be a little bit startled too. So he's, he's, he's wide awake, right? So she uncovers his feet and lies down. His feet probably get cold. How many of you, don't raise your hands, have ever woken up because your spouse has all the covers, and all of a sudden you realize I'm cold, right? My wife does all the time. I'm a cover hog, I'll admit it. So he wakes up, and he's like, what's going on here? And then she says, look, you are my kinsman redeemer. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Look at what she says in verse, verse 9. He says, I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. So that phrase, corner of your garment, if you remember back to chapter 2, Boaz blesses Ruth, and he says, Praise praise be to the God of Israel under whose wing you've come to find refuge, right? And so the word for corner of garment is the exact same word that's used for wing. And so she's saying, look, I know I'm under God's protection, but I want to come under your protection as well. I want to find rest in you. And she's letting him know that, look, now I'm ready to get married. I'm ready for marriage. And so this is what he says. The Lord bless you, my daughter, in verse 10. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, the kindness that she showed to Naomi. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. All right, so here's how we know Boaz, another indicator that he's not overindulged in his drinking because he's got a sound mind. He's able to, you know, he's not waking up like, oh, turn off the bright lights. You know, he's got a sound mind to be able to communicate, and he's got a plan. He's looking at her, and he says, look, I'm going to do all that you ask. I'm going to find a place of rest for you. It may, it, I'm, I'm praying that it's with me, but it might be with someone else because there's another guy that's closer. He's a closer relative to you, and technically he's got first dibs, right? How many of you remember dibs from like second grade? (laughs) Dibs, it's like calling shotgun, right? So he's like, this dude has dibs. I got to go and give him a chance. But if he says, no, I'm all over it. I want to be your husband. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. And it goes on. And so the the day, he says, but for now, stay here. Stay here at my feet. I'm going to cover you with my blanket so that you're warm stay here because it's too dangerous to go out at night, right? The The moral morality of the people had gone down. She could have very easily been hurt. So he says, stay here. And the, in the morning, before it's, it's too light, we don't want to let that a woman know ha, had come to the threshing floor because that would put her in a position of disgrace, right? People would start to not, they wouldn't look at Ruth and Boaz and say, look, these are people of character. We're pretty sure that nothing took place. What are they going to do? They're going to, Hey, did you, did you hear about Ruth coming to the, yeah, she, she was there with Boaz, right? So the word starts to spread, and pretty soon the reputation is damaged. So he says, I'm going to protect you physically. I'm going to protect your reputation. And when the time is right in the morning, while it's still early, before anybody knows that you're here, I'm going to load you up with some grain, and I'm going to send you back. And that's exactly what he does. So he says, look, don't go back in empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Take, take this. And he gives her about 60 pounds of food what she's carrying, on her back, back to town. So she's there. She comes back to Naomi, and Naomi's like, how did it go? And she tells her how it went. And Naomi says this in verse 18. Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. All right, so Naomi knows that Boaz is a man of character. Ruth is a woman of character. You go back to, to verse 12, where... Uh, where he says, uh, I'm s- sorry, verse 11, where Boaz says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. That word woman of noble character is chael, which is the same word that's used of Boaz back in chapter 2 to say that he's a man of standing. That chael means he's a man of standing, he's a man of character. She's a woman of character, all right? So we don't have anything fishy going on here. There are a lot of people that want to spin this, and that's not what's happening. This is all above water, right? This is a good this is a good thing that's happening. She's following some of the customs of the day by letting, her know, letting him know that she's available. Now as we, as we talk about this, as we look at this story, there's a couple of things that I want to point out. And there's one point where I want to spend quite a bit of time. So if I go through this really quickly, forgive me, but I feel it's important to, to really talk about um, one of these points a little bit more. The first thing that we see about redeeming relationships is that redeeming relationships are proactive redeeming relationships are proactive. Naomi says, look, it's the end of the harvest. This guy's had five months to make a move, and he hasn't made a move. We're going to help him, right? We're going we're to help him out just a little bit. Now, some people see this as being a little bit forward, but if you go back to, to verse 1 and 2, um, excuse me, verse 3, she says, wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. All right, so let me tell you what she's not saying. Naomi doesn't look at Ruth and say, put on your stilettos, your miniskirt, and your tube top, and go down there. That's not what she's saying. All right, so as a widow, there was a widow dress that she would have been wearing. uh, Ruth, this whole time, has been wearing her widow's clothing, meaning that I'm not available. I'm still in mourning. So when she says, put on your best clothes, she says, change out of those rags that widow's clothing and put on something good, but before you do that, you're, kind of in, you're in the field, you kind of stink. Like, we don't want this dude to get a whiff of you a mile away and go running, right? So make yourself a little bit more presentable to let him know that you're serious about this. That you are serious about pursuing him. And so, how do, how do we apply this to ourselves? Uh, whether it's marriage, or a dating relationship, or parenting, we've got to be proactive. We've got to be proactive in our relationships. We've got to take those initial steps when we need help to say, I need help. When there's something that needs to be done, we need to do it. There's a study that, that I got to go through as a part of the church planning residency called Biblical Manhood. One of the biggest lessons I remember that from that uh, study is this, men, reject passivity, right? You don't stand by and let things happen, right? You step up. You've got to step up, and you've got to say, okay, this is what God's Word says, and this is what I need to do. This is the logical step. Here's the thing. Naomi had a plan that was based on God's Word. She had a plan that was based on God's Word, and she follows through on that in her faith, but it's a logical plan, right? A lot of times people think logic and faith have to be separated, but it's, it's not. They're not separated. They work together. And so she, she knows first what the Word of God says, And so she's proactive. Not only that, (coughs) Ruth is proactive. She follows through with what Naomi says. And she does it. She goes down there and says, Yes, this is what I want. I'm going to be proactive and let him know that I'm available and that I'm willing. Not only that, we see that Boaz was proactive as well. How do we know that? Because he already tells her, He says, look, there's somebody closer than me. Verse 12, he says, although it's true that I'm a near kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than than me. So he's already looked into this. He's been proactive. He's like, okay, this this girl, I really like her. I'd love to be the one to redeem her. I'm going to check into this to see if it's possible. So he's proactive. He's already gone for it. Now, here's the thing. In our marriages, when we need help, we've got to ask for help whether that's coming for pastoral counseling with me or seeking professional counseling from a biblical perspective or coming to a couple that you know is mature in the word of God and saying, we need your help. We need your help. That's what it means to be proactive. All right, you've got to be proactive. We've got to take these steps and be proactive in all of our relationships. Not only that, think about the workplace. Let's put it from the perspective of the gospel. If you're not proactively pursuing people far from God, people who don't know Jesus, that's a problem. You've got to proactively seek them out and seek to build those relationships because what happens is it's easy to say, these are my Christian friends at church. These are my Christian friends in my small group, in my community group, and I like them. It's safe here. They believe the same things I believe. They talk the same way that I talk. And if we're not proactive, then pretty soon... Instead of having an outward focus, which the gospel calls us to, the Great Commission. Does the Great Commission, Jesus says, therefore, go. Does that say go or come? It says go, right? We have to have an outward focus. We've got to be proactive in building those relationships. Not only that, Matthew 18 is, is a, um, one of the verses that we base our church, we'll call it church discipline, on. Which, is, which says, Jesus basically says, look, if someone sins against you, then go to them, one-on-one. You go directly to the source, and you say, man, uh, this is what happened to me. And now when he says sin, it doesn't mean that they literally sinned against you, like they committed murder against you, which would make it hard to go to them. But, but uh, whenever you've got something between you and someone else, you go to them directly. And you say, look, here's where I'm struggling in our relationship, and I want it to be better. We need, we need to work this out. We need to talk about it. And, he, and then Jesus says, if they don't listen, then, then take someone else. Right? Maybe they'll listen to, to two or three people that have seen this happen. Right? So you have an unbiased person. You know, the benefit of taking someone else that second time is that they might look at you and say, actually, Charlie, I think, I think you're the one that's messed up here. Maybe you need to apologize for that, right? There's a benefit there. And then he says, if they still don't listen, bring it to the church. Bring it to the leadership of the church and let them have a say as they pray over it as to what's going on here. So there's a proactiveness that we have to take to maintain our healthy relationships. The next thing we see is that they were prepared. Redeeming relationships are prepared. You have to be prepared. This goes along with being proactive. Ruth and Naomi were prepared. Naomi had a plan. She she'd already checked out. When is Boaz going to be at the threshing floor? Okay, it's at nighttime. That's good because here's, here's the thing about nighttime. Nighttime was a little bit cooler. Remember, it's July. How many of you would like to be outside in the middle of the day at July doing manual labor? Anybody? I didn't think so. So it's July. It's hot, and he's out there working, but at nighttime, it's a little bit cooler. Not only that, the breezes are a little bit stronger at nighttime, so she knows when he's going to be out there. She knows when he's going to be coming back to his grain, and she says, go wait there. Go wait at the threshing floor. It's his night to have the threshing floor. You go and wait for him there. She's prepared. She's already checked into this, Ruth gets prepared. She does what Naomi says. She takes off her widow's clothing. She cleans herself up, and she's ready to go. Boaz is prepared again. He, he'd already checked into all of these things. He'd checked into whether or not he was available to marry Ruth. He's prepared. When the time comes, he's prepared. We've already talked about her taking off those those clothes, putting on her best clothes, and taking off those morning clothes. Next, we, we get to the uncovering of the feet. And this is where, um, you know, scholars, some of them, they let their minds go straight to the gutter, right? They've got this tendency to say, well, this is what's happening here. But there's, there's almost no way that that could be a possibility when you, when you see the character of Ruth, you see the character of Boaz, and you know that there's nothing going on here. There's nothing unbiblical, nothing unhealthy that's taking place here. This is a simple way for her to say, I'm here. I would love for you to be my husband. Let me come under your protection. And here's the thing, is that the reason she goes at night is because this is a chance. Naomi knows that if she's rejected, if she goes to Boaz's place in the middle of the day, all dressed up, takes off her widow's clothes and perfumed, people are going to know that she has made herself uh, available to Boaz for marriage. That she's saying, "Look, I'm, I'm here to be married." And if he says no, you have this poor widow woman that's a Moabite. She's an outcast going to a man of standing, and he says no what's going to happen to her she's going to be the laughing stock of the entire town and so she's prepared Naomi has prepared her to go at night so this gives Boaz a chance to say you know what i just don't i just don't want to i just don't feel that, that, like this is what i'm supposed to do which if he does that there was also a stigma at this time if you were a kinsman redeemer and we're going to get to this in chapter 4 and you say no then that's pretty embarrassing that you wouldn't do that for someone, right? So this is a chance to protect him as well. So they're prepared. Last thing, she says, he will do uh, do whatever he tells you to do, right? That's what Naomi tells her. And so Naomi knew that his character could be trusted. He knew that She knew that his character could be trusted. She was prepared for that. She was prepared that whatever Boaz said, she knew was going to be a good thing. She knew was going to be in Ruth's best interest because he had already demonstrated that by providing for her. As we go on again, I just want to reiterate that this plan was based on God's promises. This plan was based on God's word, but it was also logical. Sometimes we think, if I take logical steps, then I'm denying God's sovereignty. right? If I am proactive, if I prepare, then I'm denying God's sovereignty, but that's not the case. God's sovereignty can still work, and sometimes we use that as an excuse. Well, God is sovereign, and if he wants it to happen, then it'll happen. And we sit back and we wait for stuff to happen when God is saying, you need to get up and you need to take some steps of your own. This is what I want for you. Look into my word. Think about when when you were getting married. I know for, for me, when Amanda and I were dating, I looked hard at some logical stuff, like, do we like each other? Do we enjoy some of the same stuff? Do we just enjoy being around each other? You know, that's logical stuff. But then I came back to God's word also, and I said, is she a believer? Because as a believer myself, I knew that I could not be married to someone who wasn't a believer. And then I said, well, okay, she's a believer. Are we headed on the same path? Is she moving forward spiritually the same way that I'm moving forward spiritually That's an important question. When Scripture talks about not being unequally yoked, that doesn't just mean believer and unbeliever. That means if you have someone who is pursuing God and pursuing his will, and you've got another believer that just says, "Ah, I'm content to just, you know, sleep in all the time and never go to church and never read my Bible, and I'm content there, and you've got the other one who is fully pursuing Jesus Christ, then there's going to be a large distance between them. And so when it says, don't be unequally lo- yoked, it says, look for someone that's on the same path that you're on. All right, that's important. And so, yeah, that was, that was a box that I was able to check, that we were on the same path. We were growing in Christ together. We were growing closer and closer because we were growing closer to Jesus Christ together. So these are all logical things, but they're things that are based on the word of God. They make sense. And so don't, don't discredit the logical mind that God has given you, and say, I can't use that because that'll be usurping God's sovereignty. But make sure the logical decisions that you're making are based on the Word of God. That's where it starts. You start with the Word of God. What does it say? What does it mean? Now what is my course of action? That's the proactive. That's the preparedness. You've got to know in advance what you're going to do. The next thing we see is, uh, you know, he in verse Verse 11, go back there. He says, and now, my daughter, I will, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. He says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. And he talks about that this kindness that you have shown me is greater than that which you've shown earlier. The very first sermon we did on Ruth, we talked about this theme of chesed, the loving kindness, the, the deep uh, relational love that comes this covenant loyalty that can't be broken. And he says, this that you're showing to me now is greater than that what you showed to your mother-in-law. This is greater. Because you're, you're continuing to look out for her. Not only that, you're looking out for the name of your dead husband, who's been dead for quite a while now. You're taking care of his family. That's a big deal. He says, look, you have no obligation to marry a kinsman redeemer. You could have gone after guys that were younger. You could have gone after guys that were better looking. You could have gone after guys with more money. But instead, you chose to do the honorable thing and pursue a kinsman redeemer for your family, for your mother-in-law, for your dead husband, for his name and his property to be carried on. That's a noble thing. And then he goes on and he says, all the town people know. that, that, That town people is actually, literally, the people of the gate. This was a position of authority and a position of respect. Um, How many of you guys remember uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Anybody seen that one? if i were a rich man right he says what does he say he says i would sit at the gates and study the torah all day that was a position of respect and authority that's what tevyah is singing about he says i just want to be respected man of god that gets to sit at the gates and people would come to me to help them understand god's word and so boaz says ruth all these leaders these spiritual leaders in israel in bethlehem they know your character they know that you're noble And they're going to make sure that the right thing happens here. So he's prepared. She's prepared. Their character has been prepared. Wives, I I want to point to uh, uh, Proverbs 12.4. It talks about uh, uh, the wise woman or the woman of noble character is the crown of her husband. Right? But a foolish woman is decay to his bones. Last week we talked a little bit to the men uh, on being a mighty uh, man of valor, a man of character. Women, are you pursuing that? Are you pursuing to be that, that woman of noble character that could be her husband's crown, that makes him stand out, that makes yourself stand out as a man or uh, as a, a woman of God? Going back to, to Proverbs 30, 31, starting in verse 10, it says, A wife of noble character who can find, she is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her. The woman of noble character, this is what we're pursuing. We're pursuing that preparedness, that our reputation has been prepared, that people see us and that we're prepared. Husbands, don't miss this. Her husband has full confidence in her. Husbands, I want to challenge you. Are you doing everything you can to build up your wife? That she could could be that woman of noble character. Are you taking your responsibility to trust her? It says the husband has full confidence in her. He's not looking over her shoulder every minute saying, did you get the dishes done? Did you get dinner done? Did you get this done? Did you get this done? No, the husband says, I trust you. He's not looking over her shoulder saying, hey, you need to make sure all this stuff gets done. He says, no, she's got responsibilities, and I know that she's going to get them done. She's going to take care of our family, and he honors that. He honors that. He encourages her. Let's keep going. This is this is so important because when he talks about everyone knowing her reputation it's just a reminder it's something that I've been convicted of a little bit separate from from the relationship aspect of Ruth is just how important the reputation is you see it in chapter 2 you see it in chapter 3 our reputations matter our reputations matter and that's part of being prepared right if we want to put this in a in the context of reaching out to others how the world views you matters how your neighbors and your coworkers view you matters. Are you the man of peace that when something's going on in their, in their lives, the man or woman of peace that they know, if I go to this person, they're going to pray for me. If I go to Doug next door in my office, he's going to pray for me. If I go to Bethany, I know she's going to pray for me. I mean, is that your reputation? Something that, that I was reminded of is, uh, as far as your neighbors are concerned, what you do in your front yard matters. If you spend all your time in your backyard, and only in your backyard, and you come in, you close your garage door, and you're in the backyard, what does that communicate to your neighbors? Does that communicate that you want an open relationship with them, that you want to get to know them? But if you're out in your front yard, you're waving at them when they're going to the mailbox. You see them outside, and so you go outside, and you talk to them, ask them, hey, how are your kids doing? What does that communicate? It communicates an open relationship, that you're willing to pursue that. You're going to be proactive in that. We've got to be prepared in our, uh, with our reputations. Last thing on this point is that um, Boaz had already looked into the leg- legality of him marrying uh, Ruth. He was prepared. Are you, are you prepared for your various relationships? Are you prepared for marriage? I mean, have you taken steps? If you're not married, if you're here and you're single, have you taken steps to get with a, a m- more mature couple? Have you read the scripture, what it says to look for in a spouse? I mean, do you know what you're looking for? I'm not going to do the cheesy youth pastor thing and be like, come up with a wish list of, of all the things that you're looking for in a spouse, right? And put that in your Bible. And, you know, we're not, do- we're not talking about that, but just look into scripture. What does it say about the man or the, the woman that you ought to marry? If you're a parent, right? Parents, can you ever be prepared for children? No <laughs> No, but you can get with someone else who's, who's been there before. Like, I've never had three-year-olds before, and I'm getting ready to have three-year-olds. So it's, it would be wise of me to go to someone else and say, look, I've never had three-year-olds. I've never had teenagers before. Can you walk me through this? I know you've, you've you had a couple teenagers just a couple years ago. Help me through this. I saw what you did. And and here's the thing, if you do have teenagers, if you are one of those older couples, maybe you approach someone else and say, look, we're, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. Our marriage isn't perfect. Our kids aren't perfect. But we want to invite you into our family. We want to invite you on a regular basis to just come and be around our family. And we want to be praying for your family and encouraging you so that you can be prepared. Last, the next thing here is, is we see that these relationships that redeem protect relationships that redeem, protect. And we see that all throughout this passage. Naomi says, I want to find a home for you. I want to find a place for you. I'm not going to live forever. I want you to find rest. I want you to be protected. Ruth says, I want you to be protected. I'm going to go try and marry Boaz so that your land can be redeemed. Whoever marries Ruth has to go and buy the land as well and redeem the land. She says, I want you to be taken care of. I want to protect you. Boaz says, he's already demonstrated that he's protecting Ruth. And now he says, I want to protect you even more. I'm going to give you more stuff. I'm going to protect you physically. I'm not going to send you out in the middle of the night where you could be harmed. I'm not going to allow people to see you here. That even though you and I know nothing happened, that someone else might see it. And everyone knows our reputation. They know we're of noble character. But as soon as that little chirping starts, pretty soon our reputations are damaged. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. Right? So we see that, that there's this protection that's taking place all over. He's even protecting, Boaz is protecting the rights of the near kinsman redeemer. Think about that. This is a chance for him to get what he wants. How many of you in your business, your boss comes to you and says, hey man, great job on that presentation. And you say, thanks. All the time you know that the guy next to you is the one who put it together. And you don't give him credit. Are you protecting him? Redeeming relationships protect. Re- redeeming relationships protect reputation. Um, a while back, I had uh, someone on Facebook was frustrated with me, and they immediately went to Facebook and said, I can't believe people do this. They didn't use my name. They didn't use my name, but, but they just demonstrated frustration with someone in their lives. And uh, I, I went back and I checked on that post, and the, you know what the very next question was that somebody asked what happened? Who was it? They wanted details. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, I I know that this person's smart enough not to put it all on Facebook, but I immediately jumped to, did they, did they call? Like, did they get together for coffee and talk about me? And all of a sudden, I'm building up this, this, like, animosity, like, what's going on? Like, I I have no idea. Are, are they talking about me? Are they bad-mouthing me? Right? And so we got to be careful. We have to protect each other's reputations. When you get upset, you don't go on Facebook and just plaster it all over the place. When you're fighting with your spouse, you don't go to your parents or your best friend. Right? Uh, when we first got married, um, we, didn't, we never fight. I should say that. We, we never do. Um, where's the lightning? Is it... Let me move out of the way here. No, uh, when we first got married, uh, I made the mistake of calling my parents once when I was frustrated, and my dad said, don't ever call me again. He's like, don't do this, because you're going to go back in that house, and you're going to make up with your wife, and your mom and I are never going to know that that happened. And so we're going to still think that you guys are arguing, and in our mind, we're always going to protect her, and so we don't want to be against you. Um, that's the way my parents are. But, but seriously, you, you go to your friend. If you go to a friend and like, hey, can we meet for coffee? My husband is such a jerk. Or you go to your parents like, you would not believe what my wife did. You hang up the phone. You go home from coffee. You and your, your spouse are reconciled. Everything's fine. But that person has no clue. Because what are the chances you're going to call him up and say, hey, no big deal. It was my fault. I messed up. No, they don't know that. So you're not protecting your spouse's reputation or your friend's reputation. Matthew 18, you've got to go to them and keep it between you and them. Protect that reputation. Now, the next thing we see here is that Boaz protects her purity. It would have been very easy for Boaz to say, yeah, I'll protect you. Come on up here. Let's snuggle. Let's spoon. Right? He could have very easily said that and nobody would have known the difference. But he doesn't do that. He says, stay at my feet. Stay at my feet so I'm not tempted, so you're not tempted, and in the morning I'll send you home when it's safe. He protects her purity. Are you protecting other people's purity? If you're in a dating relationship, are you protecting that other person's purity? Here's a weird one to think about. If you're in a marriage relationship, are you protecting your spouse's purity? Right? Paul tells us that the marriage bed is to be kept pure. Like, Our marriages are to be kept sexually pure. I said it, right? I said it. Everybody heard it? Sex. Okay. Everybody say it on three. One, two, three. Sex. We're going to go there. We're going to talk about it within the confines of marriage, okay? So here's what we need to understand. Sex within marriage is good. Everybody say that with me. Sex within marriage is good. The way I like to illustrate this is like a fire. You put a fire in your fireplace in the wintertime these past couple days, man, that's a beautiful thing. You take it out and put it on the living room floor, you've got a problem. There's a proper time and place for sex and it's within marriage. Keep the fire in the fireplace, right? Not on the living room floor, right? First command God gives to man, Genesis 128. He says, go have sex right? That's the first command. He says, take your wife, husband and wife, and you guys go have sex. Be united together. It's not just a physical thing. It's an emotional thing, right? It's a beautiful thing. It's meant to be enjoyed. Amen? I know I'll get an amen from the guys on that. It's meant to be enjoyed in marriage. So Someone was talking to me yesterday. I'm, just think about all the sexual images that we see driving around, billboards, magazine ads, TV. And they said, it was actually a woman, she said, you know, when there's a McDonald's on every corner, why would I send my husband out hungry? Like, why not, you know, fill him up at home? So that way, there's no temptation there. And Paul even addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this, he says, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent, and only for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, so he's not saying that these, these people in general have lack of self-control. He just knows the strength of the urge that God has put with inside of us, male and female. We all have those urges, and he says it's got to be mutual because he's writing to the Corinthians, and some of the women are like, you know what? Um, no thanks. I'm just going to abstain, and you're going to have to deal with that, and that is not biblical right? The coldest thing in your house ought to be the refrigerator, not your bed. (laughs) I'm trying, I'm trying hard on this one. Um, So here's how we protect our, our purity in marriage. We've got to communicate. We've got to communicate on all levels, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. You've got to communicate with your spouse. Don't stop dating your spouse. Don't stop dating your spouse. In fact, if you're sitting next to your spouse, why don't you hold their hand right now? Just hold their hand. Don't stop dating your spouse. Keep having those same conversations. And, and here's another one. Uh, some of you might take offense to this, but you know what? It's, it's not a bad thing to try to be physically attractive for your spouse. Like some, some of you guys need to switch to light beer and maybe get on the treadmill, maybe eat a salad for lunch. <laughs> Ladies, you're perfect. Don't ever change. Uh, <laughs> seriously, though, There's nothing wrong with with trying to keep yourself in shape, fit, and attractive for your spouse. That is a good thing, right? That doesn't mean you have to set your objective to look like the cover of Men's Health or Women's Fitness or Shape or whatever. You know, you don't have to. That's not the goal. The goal is just, look, I want to show you that I care about you, and and I want to take care of myself. I want to look good for you, ladies. It's okay. We talked about the the stilettos and miniskirts and tube tops. You want to wear that around your husband? That is great. Just keep it in the house. Don't take it to the grocery store, all right? Keep it in the house. You want to dress nice for your husband? You want to dress in a way that shows him like, hey, look how beautiful I am. That is a good thing. Just keep it in the house. Nobody else needs to see it. Your goal doesn't need to be to make the woman down the street jealous or to make your neighbor jealous, right? Same thing with guys. In the workplace, you can protect your purity by putting up walls around yourself, right? If you work outside the home, man, go home, find every picture of your wife and kids that you can find and put it on your desk. That'll be a reminder to you that, look, I love these people and I'm not going to do anything to hurt them. And that's going to be a reminder to everyone else that he loves these people and he's not available. Not only that, but you got to build up some tall walls. There are going to be times when someone of the opposite sex says, hey, let's go have lunch together. And if you have not been proactive in preparing your mind, you might say, it's just lunch. It's just lunch. No, no big deal. It's just cocktails. No big deal. Uh, It's just a business trip. No big deal. She just invited me into her room. That's no big deal. And before you know it, it's a big deal, right? Put up those barriers. Um, What you watch This is another one, what you watch. Guys, I'm not just talking about the graphic websites, right? That's an easy one, but you pick up a GQ, you pick up a men's health, and man, there is some stuff in there that you just don't need to be watching. Even some of the suggestions on TV, watch what you watch on TV. Ladies, right? Men are visually stimulated and advertisers know that. Women, how many of you have ever cried at a Hallmark commercial? Be honest. Right? Women are emotionally stimulated. And so these movies like The Notebook and, you know, all these what we've called chick flicks, they, they have a similar effect on you as watching pornographic material does to men. Right? That's been shown in, in studies. So you got to be careful as you're watching those movies that you don't think, man, my husband is not Ryan Gosling. He's such a jerk. <laughs> right? And then you go out and you try to find a guy that's like Ryan Gosling. You've got to be protecting yourself. Some of you women are reading through the book of Ruth, and you're like, I wish my husband was more like Boaz. All right, don't raise your hand if you've been there, right? But it's tempting to say that. It's tempting to say that because this is a very emotional story, and so women connect with that. So you've got to protect yourself. You've got to be aware of what's going on. You've got to be aware of what your triggers are. Um, and the last thing, again, just that sexual relationship. That sexual relationship, it is so important. It is so important. It's more than just physical. Guys, it's more than just physical. Women, even for your husbands, women know this more than men. The emotional attachment that takes place, it's more than just physical. There's a bonding experience that takes place there, a uniting of the flesh. The two shall become one. And it's a beautiful thing when it takes place within marriage. And we should enjoy it. We should enjoy it often, right? Some of you guys are like, I'm taking notes on this one. Last point I want to I make is just that redeeming relationships are patient. Verse 18, Ruth comes back and Naomi says, um, wait, the man is not going to rest. He's going to make sure this is taken care of today. So she has to wait. She's got to wait. Sometimes we just have to be patient and wait for certain things. We have to be patient with each other. Um, Philippians, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter four, verse two says this. <clears throat> it says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. All right, so we have to be patient with each other. We've got to be patient with our spouse. We can't fly off the handle all the time. We've got to understand that, that just like us, they're fallen. And in fact, we're, you know, it, you want to help yourself out, just remember that you're falling even more than they're falling. That's, that's a helpful way to look at it. You got to be patient. You got to be patient with your kids. Do you find yourself like blowing up at your kids when they do something small? Man, I, there have been times when I like want to weep because I'm such, I feel like such a horrible father because of the smallest thing. Like they're jingling keys and I've just had enough jingling, all the jingling I can take. And I don't have, I don't have the patience to go over and say, give daddy the keys. It's like, ah! You know, the incredible Hulk comes out, and you won't like me when I'm angry. Uh, Do you have patience with lost people? Do you put on them the morals that we, as believers, have the Holy Spirit to convict us of when they don't have the Holy Spirit because they have yet to put their trust in Jesus Christ? And you look at them, and you're like, why can't they just get their act together? Why can't they just stop sinning? Why can't they just be like us? They are so disgusting. Do you have patience with lost people? Be patient with lost people. Be patient with the new believer that's just learning. They're like, man, I just came to f- faith in Jesus Christ. I'm excited, but I got no idea what this looks like on a practical level. Be patient with them. Be patient with the mature believer, right? Those of us that say, well, that person's mature. They ought to know better. What is verse, does verse 2, chapter 4, be completely humble and gentle, be patient only with those that are mature? No doesn't put any qualifiers on it. It just says be humble and gentle and patient. We've got to be patient with each other. We've got to be patient with each other. Let me wrap all this up. We see that redeeming relationships are proactive. They're prepared. They protect. And they're patient. You know where we get this model from? From God himself. God was proactive. God was proactive. He knew that man sinned. Man would sin. And so he was proactive in sending his son, Jesus Christ. He was prepared. He knew that man was going to sin long before he even created man. He had a plan. He was prepared. And he prepared the world for just the right time, for such a time as this, at just the right time for Jesus to be born and to die on the cross. And he's waiting for just the right time for God's son to, to return, for Jesus Christ to return, and for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ to be called up into heaven with him, he's waiting, he's patient. He's showing patience. First Peter tells us, uh, God is not willing that any should suffer, but that all should come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why he hasn't sent Jesus back. That's why He leaves us when we believe in the world, so that we can be preparing others, because He wants everyone to know faith through His Son Jesus Christ. How do we apply this to ourselves? First and foremost. If you've yet to put your faith in christ you can do that today it's as simple as saying i'm trusting in jesus christ alone i want to come under his wing i want to come under his protection and spend eternity in heaven for those of you that already are believers how are you doing in preparing relationships with people far from god are you preparing those like are you engaging people are you proactive in, in going out to your neighbors and coworkers and just saying, let's just get to know each other over copy? And are you proactive in, in putting the gospel in front of them every opportunity you get? Are you protecting them? Protecting them from eternity separated from God? Eternity in hell? Because if they don't trust Jesus Christ, that's where they're, that's where they're going, right? I know we don't like to talk about it, but hell is real. And it's not your sin that keeps you out of hell. Uh, Out of heaven and in hell. It's your non-faith in Jesus Christ, not trusting in Christ as your Savior, that he died for your sins. So if people don't hear, how will they ever know? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the spoken word of God. Lastly, are you patient with them? Just be patient with them. They're not going to get it right. We're not always going to get it right. Let's be patient with one another. Let's have some redeeming relationships. We pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. God, we thank you for the example that we see of redeeming relationships that are proactive, that are prepared, um, that protect us, (coughs) and that, that are patient. Lord, we pray this week that you would allow us to experience that in our marriages, in our homes, at work, in our neighborhoods, and everywhere else. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen.